there a doctor in the house? Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. Doctor. 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 And doctor. It's time for Advanced Medicine Monday with Dr. Rashid Batar. I'm a doctor, not a bricklayer. I'm a doctor, not a mechanic. I'm a doctor, not a coal miner. The doctor is in. What an amazing weekend we had uh, just the other day. We were all together in Nashville, Tennessee, in the area of our buddy Ty Bollinger. And, and uh, despite what he warned, Dr. Batar, he actually said a lot of nice things about you. <laughs> maybe, his, maybe he was scared of his wife. You know, maybe his, his wife can be intimidating, so maybe his wife, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, when the wives are present, then we all behave. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's what I'm trying to say. <laughs> We're all bad boys. Okay. Uh, well, listen, it was great. And you got a, a Lifetime Achievement Award, something to do with advanced innovative medicine. Yep, I guess I did, and you got one, too. Yeah, they said tip of the spear in health freedom broadcasting. And I was like, I don't know, do I want to be the tip of the spear? I just, you know, I just rally the troops here. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I do, I do tend to like to, you know, point out where we need to, I guess, aim, perhaps, <laughs> you know, as opposed to uh, all the other places that distract us from what really needs to be targeted. Right. Well, you know, it's kind of funny because you and I both got this, and it sounds kind of like it must not have been a big deal if you and I both got it and we do the show together, but actually, um, it you know it's a pretty big deal. So, and I never got to tell you congratulations. So, congratulations. You yeah, I thought I thought you wanted mine. I was going to get yours. I didn't. I didn't know. <laughs> <laughs> no, absolutely. It was really stunning. I mean, and uh, everybody dressed to the nines. The kids were dressed up. I mean, really, Ty outdid himself. You know, when he I don't know he when he goes big, he went big. And of course, the the entire truth about cancer series going global with it and. I, I really think this is sort of the, you know, not the tip of the spear in the sense, the tip of the iceberg as to where this is going inevitably. Uh, even though, you know, we could, we could argue that if we did nothing, the, the, uh, medical establishment as it is today will crumble because it's, it's, it's built on fraud and bankruptcy and everything else. But, uh, the reality is there are a lot of people desperately in need and don't need to wait for the collapse of the old to figure out there's something new they can do right now that may be even older than new. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. Um, the fact that, the truth about cancer, I believe they said over over 5 million people watched it, correct? Over 5 million views so far, yeah. Yeah. So I think uh, that in itself supports your earlier statement. And it's um, that fact alone shows how many people are hungry for this information. And when, when the people yearn for something in this case, information and enlightenment. They're looking for direction. They're mm. showing by their mere uh, presence on, on, the, on viewing this uh, program that in itself shows that they're dissatisfied with the status quo and they're no longer going to, uh, in some cases, tolerate it. In other cases, they may be just exploring. But regardless, I think that speaks volumes. Well, it does. It, yet, they're, you know, if we talk about the... the if it's a dichotomy, I'm not sure. But, for instance, the medical community has long known about the development of antibiotic resistance, right? Yet they've continued to participate, and they're not the only ones that are at fault here, but to, uh, prescribing these drugs when they're not warranted. But, you know, if we add on to that, of course, it's the animal feed as well. A lot of this is driven. But there was a study recently, and this is out of the United Kingdom, about patients who go to the doctor sick 
that has have expectations for getting an antibiotic prescription, they're less satisfied with their care if the doctor does not prescribe it. If the doctor does the right thing, they're bummed right. out about it. So, you know, what do we do with this? Yeah, and this wasn't a minor study because this was over a period of, uh, I believe, over a year between 2011 and 2012, and it was over a million people that responded to this. Yes. And there were over 8,000 doctors that participated in this. So it does go to show that even when doctors do the right thing, patients are dissatisfied. And this actually brings back, I think we may have talked about this on the air before, yeah. Uh, the and it was in, in a different context, but we were talking about the power that doctors think that the hospital administrators have over them, even though they don't have the same level of education or time and you know in motion and and haven't uh, spent the and they have no experience in clinical care or any of this stuff. But hospital administrators speak and everybody panics and you know jumps as if they're the uh, you know they're their masters or something and. I had a situation like this where a hospital administrator came down and told me that I would prescribe antibiotic for somebody who I had not prescribed antibiotic for because the child had already had three courses of antibiotics, and then the child came into the emergency room uh, for the fourth time, and I examined the child. It was clear that it was a viral issue, and the child should not be on antibiotics, and I told the mom. And anyway, she happened to be the neighbor of the hospital administrator, a VIP, what they refer to as a VIP. She comes, goes to the hospital administrator, complains. He comes down, and he tells me mm-hmm. that you will write a course of antibiotics. And I said, you know, <laughs> you can imagine what I said. But basically, I just asked him, I said, I said, I'll tell you what, why don't you write the antibiotics? And I said, oh, that's right. You don't have a license to write the antibiotics because you didn't go to medical school because the state does not believe you have the power, the responsibility that, that comes with that prescription writing privilege yes. to, to actually give you that privilege. So, you know, until you get the ability to write a prescription, get the hell out of my face. And, you know, I physically pushed him aside as I walked by him. I mean, you know, I, he was a small yeah, guy. Yeah, well, listen, he was well out of his place to say. But, but this is typical. This is yeah. very typical. And see, this. And why, is, why would a hospital administrator do that? And they do it for one very simple reason, because they're interested in customer satisfaction. And this is exactly what the survey is showing, customer satisfaction. The patient wasn't happy with the doctor, even the doctor did the right thing. So what, in an administrator's mind, they don't know a difference between a bacteria or a virus or the fact that the antibiotic is going to work for a bacteria but not for a virus. And now, because of the uh, increase in resistance, many of the antibiotics that would normally work against a bacteria will only work against select bacteria. So they don't understand any of this stuff. They're only interested in one thing, patients complaining because they didn't get a drug, the doctor write a drug. But Dr. Batar, at that time in that hospital where you were, how many of your fellow doctors would have stood up to the administrator the way you did? Just oh, they, I mean, they went scurrying into the cubby holes. They couldn't believe that I had—I was such an idiot that I was opening my mouth because this guy held my, held my, you know, destiny, my future in his hands. As far as I was concerned, you know, mm-hmm. I, you know, your so, destiny is how you what you make of it. But the point right. is, you're absolutely right. They, it, they, doctors are scared, and this customer satisfaction study aspect now brings up brings up a point that we really have to be. Uh, we, we have to be cognizant of and use it to educate the patients so that they understand better that, hey, if your doctor says you don't need an antibiotic, now, of course, if you've got green pus coming out and you're not, you know, the doctor doesn't give you an antibiotic and you went there for an antibiotic, well, and they don't put you on, say, you know, a natural immune enhancer or silver or, right, or right. Uh, echinacea or whatever, then 
Maybe the doctor's incompetent. And it's a very fine line. You follow what I'm sure. saying? Sure. Well, and, and, you know, the thing is, with the patient population, we can say, okay, they're not educated yet. They're demanding what they want. And, and yes, you can make excuses at that level, and it might even be legitimate. But the administrator, no, you backed them down appropriately. But as you've acknowledged, too, the vast majority of doctors are in fear for their jobs in that hospital setting. They probably would have, okay, I'll just do it because this is the VIP customer. Could this be the one? Could this be patient zero that sets the next round of uh, yeah. uh, multi-drug resistant anti- antibiotics? I mean, I don't yeah. know. but no, no, I mean, that's a very, very pertinent question. And here's the thing. Look at the issues that we've dealt with already on the air, Robert, and numerous times over the last few years with nursing staff that don't want to get the flu shot but are manipulated and bullied into doing it because of fear of their job. So now you've got nurses that are doing things um, because they, they fear that they're going to, by, by, by not taking the flu shot, they're going to lose their, their jobs. I told you what my daughter did um, you know, just a couple yes. months ago. We talked about that. And now you've got the doctors over here. Here's a server showing that you know, even if a doctor does the right thing, they're going to get... Um, tallied in the section that didn't have good customer service, which then would result in their jobs being potentially compromised. Yeah, exactly. So you go from one extreme to the other. Well, and you come right back to the administrators then, because it isn't the doctors or the nurses that I've met that are clamoring to get flu shots and to make them mandatory in order to work in these places. It's the administrators. And they're being pressured by what? Government agencies that buy the shot and sell the shot. This is about profitability. Manipulated by the lobbyists who are being paid by the pharmaceutical companies to push their widgets. Yeah. And so what if all the doctors said no and the nurses said no? I mean, the, the game would be over. But, of course, as long as they frighten them that they're going to be out of a job and they're not going to be able to cover or pay their loans back or whatever they're dealing with as far as their economic life... Uh, they hold a lot of sway because people don't have the courage of their convictions. And uh, I, I guess this has been true throughout history, but, you know, we're seeing it play out in our era. Uh, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is something that is probably, if you think about it, it's probably been historically repeated over and over again in different, perhaps in different fashions, but, you know, the the, the story is the same. It's uh, History repeats itself, and I'm sure that there have been other... Uh, times, not just. I'm not talking from just a medical standpoint. In anything, you know, whenever there's mm-hmm. this propagation of misinformation, there's manipulation. Uh, somebody pulls their weight, and other people aren't pulling their weight. Certain people push their weight onto others and intimidate them and manipulate them and create this type of uh, um, distortion, if you will, and yeah. creates issues. So we, we're just seeing this in the medical profession. You could probably extrapolate this to all the different aspects, Robert. Sure. You think about it from a financial market perspective, what the the Fed does to manipulate interest rates. And, you know, they're doing one thing. They don't understand economical factors. Or you look at the businesses coming under more duress and, and people. There was, a, there was an interesting study I just read, not study, an article that I just recently read where they polled um, the younger 20 to 30 population and more than 40 percent uh, felt that government was the right answer, and they supported socialism because they had been um, led to believe that it was capitalism that created this problem, and so it's government that basically provides a salvage. 
Yeah. Well, that's a, that's a manipulation over generations that we've seen here in this country because the things that we're putting up with or even considering or that there's a, a leg, so-called legitimate candidate for president that's an avowed socialist tells you all you need to know about how far we've exactly. uh, we've swayed from freedom as a guiding principle here. Well, you know, we're all, almost up against a break here, Dr. Batar. You know, I want to ask you about this antibiotic story because I've got some speculation on it, too. Why people feel better even if they take an antibiotic Inappropriate. Let's say they have a viral issue, right? This is often the case with a cold or a flu, and they say, I demand an antibiotic. And then you give them the prescription, they get it, and they say, well, look, I felt better. I'm all better now. What are the reasons that might happen? I want to get into that with you. And, of course, we've got a whole lot of other stories on cancer, your attitude for, for longevity as well. And what about Jimmy Carter? There's an interesting update on Jimmy Carter's cancer health or lack thereof. So stick with us. We've got advanced medicine going on. MedicalRewind.com if you ever miss a show. Easiest place to get hundreds of hours of downloadable audio from Dr. Batar for free. Great heavens. What kind of radio show is this? The Robert Scott Bell Show. Sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert. Sir, up in the show notes at robertscottbell.com, including to Dr. Batar. Also, the Mango for Health is it's it's now. I mean, we still got the image coming soon, but it, it launched September 1st and it's cranking up there. You guys want to participate? Just click the link in the show notes. Also, Van VCD. That's the vaccinated and unvaccinated uh, kind of a collation. Co- how do you say it? Collecting of data that you submit yourself, and you can access the. Uh, results immediately and look at it in a hundred different ways if not a thousand it's pretty amazing and i want to encourage you and your friends your family members to participate whether your kids have been vaccinated all the way partially not at all all of that data is going to be helpful to establish a you know a different perspective on what's going on there and uh uh dr batar man we we got to talk about some cool stuff when we were together at uh, the truth about cancer uh, gala uh, but right now, I want to transition from uh, sort of a transition from that antibiotic story we we're talking about. And I asked the question, I was like, why do people claim that they feel better even if it, they've been given an antibiotic inappropriately? So I'm not telling people that they're lying when they say they feel better. They really do. But what's going on? Well, <clears throat> we've talked about the effect of the placebo. And it's interesting first, you know, let's first discuss what the placebo is. And then it's interesting to discuss the perception of the placebo effect and how mainstream medicine looks at the placebo effect. It almost looks at it as if it's a third-class citizen that uh, should be, you know, hidden underneath the bed type of uh, attitude. Oh, well, that's just placebo. That's the black sheep, right? The artifice. Yeah, exactly. In a very derogatory manner, placebo is always addressed in in such a derogatory manner that somebody thinks, oh, uh, I definitely don't want to have anything to do with the placebo. And yet, it's probably one of the most powerful ways for us as physicians, as healers, as providers to be able to get a desired outcome with minimal side effects and minimal negative untoward effects. I think that placebo should be harnessed. I think we should be taught in medical school, in, in any type of healthcare provider, higher education, as to how one should harness the power of the placebo. Um, it's probably one of the greatest gifts that's been given to us. It's like exercise. You know, it's a, it's a natural medicine, and we should do everything we can to invoke the power of that placebo 
and just like we should do everything with our part to do the exercise, which naturally helps us to stay healthy and, and right. get the you know get the body going in the right direction. So let's first discuss coming back what's happening with the antibiotic. For example, you give somebody an antibiotic, and and you, you had an interesting component that you talked about during the break just now since that's the only time we can review these things during break, right? <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I was talking about the immunosuppressive action by wiping out all bacteria, which is the seat of your immune system. Your symptoms will dissipate because your immune system is responding. That's what's giving you the symptoms that you don't like. You call that illness, sickness. You're like, I feel rotten. If you take that response away, you might feel a little better. doesn't mean you're going to be better. Certainly, as a homeopath, we would say you're driving your acute disease into chronicity. Yeah, this is an interesting phenomenon. People say when they come in, we've talked about this in cancer before, people say when they come into the office, well, I don't understand, i got cancer, I've never been sick a day in my life. Well, that's not a good sign. Why isn't that a good mm -hmm. sign? Because that, that you, they didn't have an adequate response, a natural response that they should have had, indicating that their immune system was working. And so what you're talking about is actually getting rid of the impetus behind the immune response that that's essentially what you're talking about right yeah exactly exactly and you you can you can stop the immune system from responding and you might temporarily feel better and i believe that might be part of not the whole explanation for why people take in about antibiotics inappropriately and say hey i feel i feel better i got better quicker yeah i i think that that may be part of it i think the other part is the fact that uh a f person that you've come to to see who, who is responsible for helping you get better a doctor or a healthcare provider you've come to now gives you something that act in itself the fact that they care they've given you some attention they've talked to you they've gotten some information and they've now come up with whether or not this reality or not the perception from the individual from the patient is this person has now put together the information i've provided them and and they care about me they've come up with an idea of what this is going on and x y x y or z is going on and now they're giving me the solution because they again think the doctor knows everything and so because they have this all-encompassing uh, um, confidence in the doctor's ability to figure out what's wrong, the doctor gives them something. It could be a sugar pill. It could be, you know, the complete wrong medication. But some people will have that placebo effect and say, oh, yeah, I feel better. Well, let, let's continue this discussion on the other side of the break. We'll also get into the power of belief as it relates to not only overcoming uh, acute disease but chronic disease and as it relates to longevity. Fascinating discussion we always have. Here with Dr. Raja Bittar, Advanced Medicine. Again, you can find it archived at Natural News Radio. Of course, that's uh, the new Natural Talk Network, I should say, as well as our syndicator, GCN. Back with more powerful healing after this. Um, can you repeat the part of the stuff where you said all about the things? It's the Robert Scott Bell Show. Robert will be right back. bureaucrats and corporations that would stand in the way of health freedom. Here's Robert. All right, Dr. Bittar, the uh, belief issue is, is one I want to talk with you more about today. I mean, we started this discussion basically when we got into the antibiotics, the, the patients that said, we want the antibiotic. If you don't give it to me, doctor, I'm going to be disappointed. I won't be happy. Get into the, the, the establishment within a hospital setting. The administrators have said for pressuring, it's inappropriate, but this is happening all over. And unfortunately, most doctors kind of rolling over because their jobs are at stake, their money, their lifeblood, their economics. Uh, it doesn't make it right. It just, that's, we recognize what's going on. And then the placebo effect comes into play. Why antibiotics would work. 
and I agree, a big part of it is placebo. Oh, now they're happy. They're, they're satisfied. They're, they're feeling good about the interaction. I got my script. I left. I got what I came for. Now we're going to be better. Exactly. And I think that the ability to invoke that placebo effect goes a long way to help actually stimulate the, the necessary cascade that's uh, essential for the healing process. Because whether or not the, the pill that you got is actually causing a bactericidal um, response or, or whatever kind of response, your immune system is far stronger than any antibiotic. And if the immune system can be stimulated based upon the master computer um, doing whatever it does, then some, you know, it, it's, it's going to accomplish the results whether or not we realize it or not. We, we know that only 3% of the brain is being used, and that at least Einstein, they said, that only used 3% of his brain. So what is the capacity of the brain? What, what other hidden components can the brain accomplish that we're not aware of? Yes. And I have seen this so many times, Robert, in my own personal experience. Um, I'll give you a quick example. In, uh, at Brook Army Medical Center at Fort Sam Houston, which is where I did my residency, and then also a lot of rotations that I did in, um, uh, at Baylor at Ben Taub, which is in Houston, so we did a lot of uh, rotations at um, at Ben Taub uh, with the military residency program. And I'll tell you, we had a lot what they call the knife and gun club. Okay, the knife and gun club basically is where a lot of people that are getting uh, treatments that are coming into the emergency room and, and getting treatments with at least on the surgical side of the house were people that were victims of either bad drug deals or whatever the case may be but they'd sustained some type of penetrating trauma, whether it was knife or, or uh, gunshot wounds. And so they would end up having a long course in the hospital after the operation that saved their life. They may be in there for a couple of weeks. They may be in there for a couple of months while they're rehabilitating from those injuries. And the vast majority of these people were all drug addicts. They already had uh, significant issues with withdrawal while they were going through that time in the hospital during the rehabilitation. And obviously that's a very difficult time while they're going through it. You know, they're hallucinating, they're seeing things, you know, things crawling on their bodies, et cetera, et cetera. And I cannot tell you how many times people would say, you know, I'm, I'm in pain, doc, you got to help me. And, you know, this was like an orchestrated plan between the nursing staff and I was an intern and a resident at the time. And so you don't want to get called in the middle of the night 25 different times because a person that's addicted to drug needs another hit of his, you know, of his uh, morphine or something. So we would play this game where the nursing staff would call. I would come. We would be within eyesight of the patient. This was open wards back then at Brook Army Medical Center, so they were like the old-time open wards. They can see you at the nursing station. You, they can see you kind of, the nurse says something, and then, you know, I would throw up my hands and say, no way, blah, 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 and they'd argue back and forth. And then I'd come in, I'd talk to the patient. I'd say, you know, you can't keep on getting this pain medicine. You know, we can't do that because it's affecting you, blah, blah, blah. But, Doc, you don't understand. I'm in so much pain. It's not working. And so then, I, you know, the nurse would say, well, you know, she'd whisper something and say, no, we can't do that. And the nurse would say, okay. And then, Doc, what, what's, she, what's she talking about? You know, no, no nothing, nothing. Well, what's, what's she saying? What's she saying? <laughs> you know, yeah. you'd say, well, yes. okay, she's saying that I should give you some Sufenta. What's Sufenta? Well, I mean, that stuff is really, you know, that'll knock an elephant into next year. You know, you can't, I yeah. can't use that. Doc, please, just, you know, we play this whole game. It'd go back. It was like, you know, Academy Award performances type. <laughs> yes, and, it sounds and then, like. You know, it. you'd go there and then I'd tell the guy, look, I'm only going to do this once. I can lose my license for this you know they'll kick me out of the hospital the nurse is taking a big risk we're doing this for you don't tell anybody else don't tell any other patients don't tell any buddies that oh doc i promise i won't 
you know, and then we'd give them this, you know, give them this, and they said, we got to go real slow. And it's just sailing, but they would get relief. They would sit there, yeah. and go, <gasps> you know, they'd pause, and they'd, they'd put their hand on the chest and settle down, and they'd be, right. thanks, Doc, you know. And, and all you did was do sailing. And it's not just once or twice. I mean, I would say probably 90% of the time we did this, it worked. Amazing. That, that power to overcome the uh, perceived pain. Remember, perception is reality. And you're right. You're activating aspects of the of our power that we kind of deny, and and some in the pharmaceutical community don't want to acknowledge as they you know look at the placebo effect. Like you said, a, like a redheaded stepchild. And la- last hour we were talking about the placebo impact they were claiming was happening with CBD and seizures. And you know this wasn't a and double we blind. We should be invoking it. That's what my response is. Yeah. Anything we can do to invoke the, the placebo effect, we should be doing so. Right, but the irony is they were all on these anti-seizure meds that weren't working. They added the CBD in, and suddenly they weren't having seizures. And I'm yeah. thinking, okay, uh, do you think maybe you could just drop the other drug at this point, or do you think the CBD made the drug work? What are you well, thinking it's, it's here? It's right? very funny because I remember one of the uh, leading researchers from University of Southern Florida calling, and he was talking about trans at the time, and they said, you know, this is this can't be real. This has to be a placebo effect. And I said, well, well, if it's placebo effect, then then somebody needs to tell the horses because they were using it on horses and they were increased. <laughs> they weren't getting they weren't any faster, but their right. recovery time after doing a race was uh, twenty minutes as opposed to a day or two. And uh, it's a known fact that animals aren't affected by placebo effect. And so you know, it, there's certain ways that you can find out whether it is or not the placebo effect. But my point is, even if it is the placebo effect, why aren't we using it? We should be trying to figure out how else to. Uh, mm-hmm. get that placebo effect and utilize it and harness it because it has a tremendous amount of power. And, uh, Robert, the thing is with these guys, when I was giving them the, the, the saline, it's, you, you said the key word, it's the belief. Because yeah. as soon as the patient, you can transcend their belief system, and they think, because if, if I just said this is what it is and given it to them, they wouldn't have believed it. But, see, the fact that I'm arguing with the nurse and the nurse is saying, no, it's for his good, and I'm saying no, and then I'm saying, okay, I'm going to do it for you, but I'm going to risk my license. They're looking at you, okay, this guy cares so much. He's willing to risk his license just to help me. And, and you know, I, I, I want it to work for me. I, you know, it's, it's, it's eliciting all these different aspects of that emotional, psychological component we talked about, the emotional, psychological toxicity, the fifth toxicity. Many of these people never had parents that cared, cared, uh, cared about them. Never, they never had anybody that cared about them. The first set of people that ever cared about them was inside the gang. And because of that gang, they're now inside the hospital after being you know, shot right. at a couple of times. And now here's a doctor and a nurse, and they're, they're, they're obviously spending a lot of time discussing, contemplating, arguing, and then finally doing something for them. It invokes a whole cascade. And I think that placebo that we talked about and that you said we treated as a redheaded stepchild, it's yes. probably one of the most powerful things that we should do everything in our power to, to harness. So at what, what year of medical school was all of this you've just described? Well, I, this was uh, internship year and, and med- uh, residency year, my first year in residency. So this first two years after, I was, I was, already, I was already out of medical school at this point. But so, I, but I was going to ask in terms of what year of medical school would they be teaching the things you're telling us? Uh, never. Never, exactly. Uh, yeah. In fact, yeah. it's always, uh, you know, as you said, it's redheaded stepchild. It's minimized. It, yeah. It's always used that word, oh, well, that's just placebo. Like, oh, well, that's just, you know, BS. Well, that's right. just, you know, garbage. That's just nothing else. If you embrace it, of course, then you become uh, relegated to the corner over there. Well, that's Dr. Batar. He's the magnesium guy. Remember him? That's right. right? Yeah. <laughs> you remember the magnesium story, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah. But uh, <laughs> listen, I, that's why that's why we love you. You know, you you never you never worried about where where people were going to put you. You just kind of went on through. Uh, and this leads to this next story, which you'll like. Your attitude about aging may impact how you age. Yeah, I believe that. 
right? Tell us something we don't know. How, it yeah. says, how do, you, how do you feel about old people? Your answer appears to be connected with how well your brain holds up against Alzheimer's disease, according to a series of two new studies published in the journal Psychology and Aging. And so literally how you feel about aging, because when I grew up and I looked at my elders dying of cancer, or now we know the treatment of cancer, things like that, Parkinson's even, and I'm thinking, gosh, man, this is not a pretty picture. Is this, is this, what, is this the way aging is supposed to be? And, of course, my mentor in homeopathy transformed my, my future by, by seeing living examples of a different way to age gracefully, youthfully, and not go down that pathway. And that, of course, what would it do? It would it change my belief about healing, change my belief about the future of my own life. And, of course, I changed what I did because I realized that belief, even though we know belief is the key, if that belief comes with no changes in your life, then is it really a belief? That's a good point. That's a very good point. You know, I think that a lot of this also comes down to what do you, what do you see, not just of aging, not only your attitude about aging, but what is your attitude about yourself? Like, I don't think of myself as my age. I, I don't know why, because I know that certain things I'll be doing, and I can't do it, and then I think, oh, well, why can't you do it? You know, what the <laughs> hell's wrong with you? And then part of me says, well, you're you know, X number of years old, and then you think, yeah, but that's BS, and that just pushes me so that within another two weeks or three weeks, I can do what I thought mm-hmm. I couldn't do, what I wasn't doing. Right. It had nothing to do with it. I can tell you this, that in the last year or two years, I've, done, I've been able to do things that I didn't do 10 years ago. So yeah. aging, your perception of aging, or how you perceive not only the aging process or, or uh, your attitude towards aging, but your attitude about yourself, too. Do you see, do you see yourself as doing things that you did? Be- do you see yourself doing things better than you did 10 years ago? Because in myself, in my own mind, I don't see myself as my age. And I think that I kind of feel like, that's not me. That doesn't make any oh, sense. Oh, I know. The, the only thing that belies that is a little bit of the gray hair there. That's it. And I look at that. I was like, dang, damn it. Where did that gray come from? But you're right, too. You know, when I, I mentioned last hour, too, about how, um, you know, I could see that I used to be able to do something that I would say, if it's jumping a certain height or something, and, I'm, and I say, I know that I can't do that right now. It isn't because I'm older. It's because I'm not training to do that anymore. And exactly if I got right. back into it, I would, you know, that's that's the perspective. You know, it's different than just aging. It's like, listen, you can age, but what do you want to do as you age? You know, you if you want to keep training in a specific way because that brings you great joy, great. If not, then you've done that. Now do do something else. You're exactly right. That's exactly right. And that's why when I've experienced that component, it takes two, three, four weeks to get to that point, and then you can do it again. And then you tell yourself, see, had nothing to do with my freaking age. You know, this is just a, a lazy-ass lazy <laughs> excuse for myself yeah. and not doing it and saying, oh, it's my age. And this is what doctors do all the time when they say, well, it's your age. It's your age. It attributes certain inabilities of people to do certain things because they say it's their age and it has nothing to do with the age. It always has to do with making an excuse and becoming apathetic. Yes, there's less recovery. It takes more recovery time. It's less recovery time necessary when you're younger and it takes a little bit more recovery time because sure. you've been on the market, on the planet, for a much longer time. So, yes, we need there some... may be a little bit longer in recovery, but the ability to do it or not to do it has nothing to do with age. It has everything we... to do with one, attitude, and two... Time to recover. Uh, we got a commercial break. Around the world, the Robert Scott Bell Show. Bell Show. Robert Scott Bell.
making sense out of medical propaganda. Here's Robert. Sometimes Dr. Vitar gets on a roll. Oh, heck, he gets on a bagel. He just rolls with it right to the break there. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> a great discussion today. As always, if you're new to the advanced medicine segments, we do this each and every uh, Monday. And uh, you can also uh, connect to uh, Dr. Vitar's international best-selling book, The Nine Steps to Keep the Doctor Away. Uh, speaking about keeping the doctor away, how about those flu shots? Our friend Jeffrey Jackson from Health Impact News, he's got an article out there. Getting yearly flu shots decreases effectiveness, increases adverse events. And uh, Jeffrey really laid it on because he got great uh, uh, context and quotes from doctors and as well as uh, linking out to studies that actually show factually what we're talking about, how flu shots are nothing but bad for you. Well, yeah, I, I guess... Um that's great that he did that, but we there's nothing new here, right? Because it just validated what we've been saying, and um, it's it's good to have that kind of confirmation. But we know that all the adjuvants and all the other toxic material within the vaccines is going to suppress the immune response. It's going to increase the burden of, on the immune system, and it's going to reduce the responsiveness of the immune system. And um, so whether that's manifested as ineffectiveness of the vaccine or decrease in immune response, um, you know, it's it, it basically is saying that it's ineffective to use vaccines. Yeah, it's it's a it's an accumulation. It gets worse each time. And uh, the studies are showing that, in fact, it's weak. It's exactly right. It's what we've been saying for years. But he's just quoting a 2013 study, 2011 studies. And, you know, for those folks that are on the fence on this, uh, take a look at the article. We have it linked up in the notes at robertscottbell.com. Now, uh, what do you want to wrap up here with uh, we, Jimmy Carter? I, listen, I'm, I got nothing against Jimmy Carter. You know, politically, people can say he's a lefty, this or that. But, you know, I don't want to see people die or suffer from cancer. If he's doing well on his treatment, I'm happy. I don't know what he's doing in, totalitar- in totality, but um, I really like to kind of nuance the battle concept for cancer, right? Because they are saying that battle is a bad word when it comes to cancer. But I think there's a nuanced way to use that context or, 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 or describe, you know, the battle of fighting of cancer, or is it something else? Yeah, I think that the equation of the fight with cancer as being a battle, I, I find it to be appropriate because I do see it as going into a battle. But I don't see it uh, as a battle for the patient. I see it as a battle of what I'm doing to help the patient in the sense that the thing that I'm battling is a patient's own fifth toxicity, the emotional, psychological toxicity, and it's the patient themselves that are fighting their own fears within themselves. It's, they're fighting their own uh, emotional, psychological issues themselves. It's not taking on the connotation of a battle in the body. I actually see that more as an opportunity to give the cancer to revert back to what it came from originally, which was originally healthy cells. Yes. Um, but the entire turmoil of having to deal with, oh, you have cancer, and then the fear of it, and, and negating the fear, that is a battle. It's an ongoing battle. In fact, life in many ways, Robert, is a constant uh, evolution, which is really a battle. Yeah, and on some level it is. Uh, at the same time, we don't want to be in that state of fight or flight like uh, uh, Dr. Bruce Lipton talks about, you know, growth, healing, fight or flight. And so that's why I say it's a nuanced discussion here on the concept of battle because in many ways, yeah, there's friction, there's, uh, you know, there's trials, there's tribulations, there's illness and ailments that teach us, and without illness we don't know health. I mean, these are the things. We're, in, we're living in the worlds of duality here. Yes, that's, I, I agree with you. I totally agree with you. Um, I think that the flight-fight response actually, though, 
is, is a is an issue that becomes more paramount when a person is in that state of fear. But if you're willing to fight, and, and you understand, there's an adage from a great movie that I saw called Savages, kind of a brutal, uh, violent movie. But there's a scene in there where one of the people says, who's who served four tours in Iraq, he says, when you realize, when you come to the realization that from the moment that you were born, you're dead, then life takes on a different perspective. <laughs> You know, and there's a calmness that comes up about you, yeah. and you know it's the fear of dying that I think paralyzes so many people, and so it's that the battle that I'm reverting to is to the battle of getting up every day and doing what you know you need to do in order to do to 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 be healthy. It's a battle to do. You know, you, you you've got that part in you that says, "Hey, it's okay. Just make the deal with the medical board and compromise, and that way they you know they're not going to take your condominium in Myrtle Beach, and they're not going to take your office, and blah blah blah." Yeah. Or you can uh, you have to battle it and say no. What am I going to do? It, it, so these are the types of battles that I'm talking about. It's it's an sure. awesome because as soon as you don't battle anymore, you know, then yeah, then it just starts. Yeah, to life away. is over too. Uh, listen, fear of death is really a fear of living. That's that's really honestly what that is. But we got right. more to discuss. But we're out of time, Doctor Batar. Uh, it's it always goes by so doggone fast. You better tell them what they need to know. That the power to heal is yours. Thank you, my friend. The Robert Scott Bell Show.